Hi, and welcome back to Industrial Theory. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, CEO of Stone Age, and I hope you're having a fantastic week and a very safe one, too. I'm thrilled to bring my guest today, Mr. Tom Costabile. Tom is the executive director and CEO of the American Society for Mechanical Engineers. I love this interview because it gives you this whole different perspective on the engineering that goes on behind all of the products that we use in our industry. Tom has a fascinating background. He began his career in the nuclear power industry, which is such a coincidence because Stoney started in the nuclear power industry as well. Back in the 70s, we built a water jet drill that allowed for easier uh, mining of uranium for the nuclear power industry. So we talk a little bit about how that has shaped his career, obviously how it's shaped Stone Age. Tom went on to do all kinds of things, but most interestingly, he went into the entertainment industry, working for CBS Records, eventually Sony, where he figured out how to lead their entire uh, manufacturing and distribution operations and, and has a, a wild ride through all of that. He's also been in private equity, came out of retirement to run the ASME, and it's a fascinating story. We talk about technology. We talk about why engineering matters. We talk about technology that's going to be happening in our industry because of mechanical engineering. It's a fun interview, and I hope you enjoy. It's a completely different perspective. Hang tight, and I'll be right back with Tom. All right, everyone. I am back with Tom Costabile. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, Carrie, thank you. It's it's truly a pleasure. And uh, getting to know you and getting to know Stone Edge has been just truly a, a rewarding experience. It, uh, I admire what you, you've done with the company. I admire what you've done as an individual. And the fun part is that we're both engineers, but you would never know that we're engineers. So uh, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. And we're going to get into that. Uh, so, but let's start a little bit about what you do now, because I think that's going to set the stage, um, especially as we talk about your journey to, to get to the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, ASME. So can you tell us a little bit about the organization? What's the mission and what's the purpose? So ASME has been around for 142 years. Uh, <clears throat> it was originally uh, founded to, uh, to provide a forum for engineers to talk about how do we do things on a uniform basis? How do we create a more safer environment? And it always, at the time, back in 1880, uh, there was steam was the main propulsion. So steam boilers were blowing up, we were killing people. John Stevens had the foresight to say, why don't we get together and collaborate and develop standards? Uh, our first standard came out in the early 1900s. Uh, today, we have a little over 600 different standards. Uh, what we're most noted for is our boiler code. Uh, so the, uh, the boiler code standards, the boiler and pressure vessel piping standards, are um, a little over 19,000 pages. So when you look at it in terms of what we do and the, from the material specifications that we co-partner with other SDOs to uh, the actual, you know, several thousand volunteers sitting and discussing codes, uh, ASME is fortunate that we have such so many dedicated volunteers. You know, when I, <clears throat> I came out of retirement, this is my fourth time, and I decided that I wanted to do something to give back to an industry, give back to a profession uh, that I, that's been very good to me. So, you know, working for a nonprofit uh, has been a different experience for me. I will tell you, there's a few for-profit companies that I considered nonprofit that I worked for in the past, but, uh, <laughs> it's been, it's been an interesting organization. And, and as you know, as a mechanical engineer, 
we see many, many different aspects of engineering that other more focused groups don't. So, you know, whether we're in biomechanics or whether we're in robotics or fluid and heat transfer, um, it gives, um, it gives a broad spectrum, you know, from stone age. And if you look at the, the success of stone age and, and what you all do and your, your team and you, what the inventors or the founders have invented in terms of their devices, it makes a huge difference in, in what we do every day and people don't focus on it. It's just, yeah. it's taken for granted. Yeah. Agreed. And you have an interesting background, you know, growing up through engineering and then in the entertainment industry and in private equity. So obviously you were brought in to run ASME to create a different vision. So, you know, what, what do you, what do you see as the future of the organization and what big changes do you think you're going to make, um, across um, the mechanical industry industry? Well, it, it's good. You know, I'm fortunate to work with some, some very talented and, uh, very, very smart individuals. So there's, you know, ASME is a, a multi-conglomerate organization. So if I, if I use some te terminology from the business world to the, the society world, yeah, we are a society uh, of engineers. We, do, we have, we, we, <clears throat> we write and produce different codes and standards, but we also do conformity assessment work. We also do publishing uh, as a professional society. We publish, uh, you know, 30, some 30 plus different journals. Uh, we have a whole uh, glamorate of course offerings in terms of our learning and development environment. Uh, <clears throat> since I've been here, we've refocused and we rebuilt our foundation. So we're now issuing this year, we will we'll issue about a half a million dollars in scholarships. The goal is to get to somewhere between, you know, two and a half to three to $4 million worth of scholarships over a five year period. And in there, how do you promote more engineering? How do you find the next Gary? How do you find the next Tom? You know, my wife and I personally believe in that. We, and we set a goal a long time ago that we're fortunate that we've established a scholarship just for women in engineering. So yeah. I, I'm focused on a, equality, a diversity, a diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm glad it's front focus now in our society because we I've been doing that for years. You know, my sole purpose is if, if you're smart you, and you work hard, let's join the team. Uh, don't care anything about anything else. But so what's, what's the vision for ASME? The world is changing, you know, the way that individuals use standards and the way that ASME generates, uh, income or revenue to be able to plow it back into the standards development industry, develop in, into our programs, into promoting uh, K through 12 STEM education. Um, we have to diversify our revenue streams. And that's basically when I came into the ASME, the, the board of governors had a sp specific plan. Uh, I was, I had the opportunity to take a look at that uh, bring in some new talent to, 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 build upon that foundation, which was, was very solid and then begin to change to today's way of life. You know, typical standard, uh, we use the ANSI consensus version. It takes three to five years to develop. We don't have three to five years with today's technology. You might have three to five months before it's changing. So how do we focus on that and, and partner? And the other thing that I've, I've been focusing on is more partnering and collaboration. So we all have a wheel. We all want to make it spin fast. We don't have to reinvent it. We can join together and put, you know, whether it's talent, subject matter experts or, or talented volunteers, put them all together to work on a project in a collaborative state. And quite frankly, that's, that's been the fun. I get up every day wanting to go to work as opposed to getting up saying I have to go to work. And it's, it's because of the, the volunteers and the staff that I work with. That's amazing. And I really love the scholarship piece of it. 
Uh, and I think how if, if people are interested in applying for for a scholarship, I mean, how do they go about doing that with ASME? Well, uh, thank you for asking that. We have on the ASME website, uh, www.asme.org. Uh, if you type in scholarship or if you go to the foundation, you'll see that. And you'll also see, because we're engineers, you'll also see the impact of what our scholarships have done. So we, uh, we have a couple of very talented individuals that have developed social return on investment uh, views. So you can look in uh, the scholarship piece or my favorite, Carrie, is the, our efforts with the STEM K through 12 work. You can actually, well, focus right down to the county that you live in and see the impact that ASME is doing. And we're building upon that every day. The data is live. The team that's done it is, is quite a unique group, group of individuals. Uh, we have an operation in India that supports our codes and standards work, our conformity assessment work. And they came to me saying, could, do you mind if we reach out to our team in India to do all the data collection, data crunching work that's there? Well, we've assembled a talented group of individuals uh, that as ASME staff that do all that work now. And I'm pleased to just show you that, uh, if you pick up your, I can pick up my mobile phone as I have on many occasions say, okay, the reason you want to donate to ASME is here's the impact and you can see it real time. So I went to this, uh, title one school in Dallas, walked in, it was a, uh, the first class was a, a group of fourth graders. And the second group was a group of seventh graders. The, I came out of there and the energy that I was glowing with, I could have lit the city of Dallas. There was one young lady, the program that we have developed at, at that particular point in time, gave you the opportunity to discuss STEM education. So the science, the engineering part, the math part behind it. And so you sit at a desktop computer and you say, okay, I want to be a, the most popular one that day was, I want to be a sneaker designer. And they didn't realize that the engineering mechanics that went into sneaker designing and what have you. And then the, uh, the group, the older group, they actually had to develop a, a race course for mechanical bugs. So we have these little battery powered bugs that have to go through the, the race course and they had limited materials, uh, paper towel holder, some straws, different pieces. The energy was unbelievable in terms of the teamwork and what have you. So afterwards they, we, we congratulated everybody. We rated this whole thing. And this uh, one young lady sits up there and says, you know, I never realized how much fun I could be being an engineer to do this. So she says, how much money do you make? And I said to her, well, you don't know my wife, but I don't make enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, but th that's the level of thought process that these young kids went through just from a simple, the opportunity to re relate to math, science, and, and the practicality of, okay. I never realized that I, I needed to be uh, an engineer to design sneakers. Well, you, that's one part of it. The other part of it is the creative side. So. Yeah, well, and engineering is so creative too. I think that's why my engineers love working at Stone Age because there is such a creative aspect to it. And, you know, they love going into the machine shop and being able to machine some of their own parts and, and get out there and test it. And we really encourage, you know, a, a customer-centric engineering team so they understand our customers and they're out there in the field with their customers so they can creatively solve these problems. And I think a lot of people maybe think that, oh, engineering, it's a very process driven. It's, you know, it's not that creative, but I find it to be quite the opposite. And do you think there's that stereotype that has to be overcome that it's really, truly a very creative industry or profession? I think there is a bit, a bit of stereotype that needs to overcome. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> engineering today is, is much, much different than when I was there. And I'm a dinosaur compared to you. So 
you know, when I look at it, we didn't have computers when I was in engineering school. Right. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. We had an analog computer that was on, you know, maybe 12 foot high and eight foot wide on a wall. And, and it would take you 15 to 20 hours to program it with little punch cards and wires and what have you to just do a simple arithmetic calculation. If you look at your iWatch uh, or your, your, your iPhone today, uh, the, the power is unbelievable. Yeah, the reason I say that is that you, know, you come out and you look at technology and you look at what technology has done. So I truly believe that there is that attraction of use of technology. And, and then it's like, a, it's an aha moment. Yeah. I never thought that I could do this with technology and whether I'm an engineer or not, I'm, I'm going to buck up against the engineering profession. And how do I use that to, to, to increase my profession? As you know, with today's additive manufacturing and 3d printing. Uh, in my lifetime, when we designed something, then we had to put it out for prototyping. It would take months to get the prototype back. And then we would try and do things with it. And, and just because we're engineers, if it was simple the first time, we had to go back and make it much more difficult to solve the problem. <laughs> Today with 3D printing, it gives you that ability to further refinement. And that's where I believe the creativity comes in. So I'm glad you're laughing because, you know, being an engineer, I'm sure you've experienced that one or two times. This, this couldn't work because it was way too easy. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I deal with it pretty much every day. Like, okay, we are really simple. It's, can we figure out how to make this simple? Like, no, it doesn't work if it's that simple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the other part that you, you mentioned, I, I think about it in terms of, uh, I've been fortunate to work with some of the, uh, some very brilliant companies in my lifetime that allowed us the, the flexibility to, to, uh, to experiment. So my, when I was in college, I, I learned a concept called design of experiments. I still use that today in, in just about everything I do. It's that, that basic fundamental structuring of the thought process of how we put it together. Then I jump forward to the opportunity to say, okay, now I have a prototype. All right. So now the prototype is here. And if I'm designing a manufacturing line, or if I'm designing a component that's going to be integrated into a manufacturing line. In my day, we would give it over to a, a technician or we'd give it over to the, uh, the mechanic side of the house and, and work with them to do it. When I had the opportunity to run the groups, I would make sure that the engineers were the ones that were out there doing it themselves. It's a big, it made a substantial difference in terms of the quality product, the, sim the simplified uh, design that was there as opposed to just saying, okay, here's what we have to do. You go make it work. Yep. Uh, the, the U in that case was the same that it or the gal that designed it. So. I agree. Manufacturability matters. Uh, it's the yeah. name of the game. And that's why it's so important that all of our engineers know exactly how hard it's going to be or how easy it's going to be to manufacture their design because we're not in and everything that we do. It, there's not a cheap way to do it. And so we've got to be very conscientious about the materials that we design with because ultra high pressure water um, you know, obviously there's galling issues, there's wear issues, there's material fracturing. So mechanics of materials matters. And then how do you design it so that it's going to work, but also be reasonable to manufacture. So sending them to the machine shop and having them machine these parts is just a critical aspect of any onboarding. The other part we should talk a little bit about too, is that we're seeing a lot more. And that's one of the, 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 the truly the, the benefits of the position that I enjoy at ASME and they so he enjoys, you know, how is artificial intelligence yeah. being brought into just about everything that we do today? So I, I had the opportunity to sit with a, staff, a group of staff engineers and we were talking about you know, artificial intelligence and we were getting ready for uh, one of our big conferences. The, uh, I had the opportunity to in interview uh, a gentleman that's been involved in the, uh, 
in the aeronautics and airline airline uh, design industry for, for years. And, you know, part of the, the, the AI effects of, okay, autonomous vehicles or autonomous planes, you know, how do you, how do you write the code to, to, to go down a path of, you know, what does the vehicle do? Or what, what does the, uh, what does the airliner do in certain d different situations? It's pretty intriguing. And, you know, I, I was riveted to, to, to my seat with regards to what he was saying in terms of how do you structure something to, to make it, you know, how do you structure the intelligence to make a decision if, um, you're going down the street and you know that if you, the car in front of you stops, and uh, if you hit that, you might hurt the passengers in your car, as opposed to if you veer to the right, you might hurt the pet, you know, the pedestrians on the side of the street. An engine, an average engineer in my time would never think of something like that. Right. In today's world, that's front focus in everybody. So it's an added dimension that is really, really intriguing. Yeah, so, I think so. And, and, you know, that's, that's a good segue into our industry. You know, Stone Age serves industrial cleaning contractors who mm -hmm. serve the refining petrochem, chemical industry, which, you know, I, certainly on the production side, I would not say um, are technologically advanced. I think in other aspects, uh, they certainly are. You know, how do you see how do you see mechanical engineering and, and using AI and machine learning, you know, really changing what might be considered to be an old school industry? Well, again, I see a lot of up, uh, upside potential for you all, for Stone Age in particular. So when you look at uh, the concept of developing a digital twin, so, you know, you're, you know, you know, I grew up in the power industry. That was my first job was designing nuclear power plants. You know, and when I look at it today, the, the simulation programming that's out there and what have you, you get a much better design. So, you know, I'll, I'll simplify, uh, simplify for the, the uh, our audience today. As you know, when you go to doing a cleaning a large boiler or a large steam generator, that takes weeks. When the, that unit is down, the entire plant is down. That's costing somebody a lot of money. You know, the, the shareholders not are not getting. So, do you develop a, a digital twin package that's based on predictive, uh, based on data that you can have predictive analytics, and then fast fast forward so that okay, if I only if I only clean two thirds of the tubes in this particular day, that takes maybe you know, three weeks to do instead of taking six weeks. And I do partial shutdowns at different times of the year. The tools are available, uh, as you know, uh, that gives you the feedback. And then the, as a result of cleaning it, you see the efficiencies and what have you. And then it gives Stone Age the opportunity to upgrade its components, you know, add new features in your design and your toolkit that says, okay, for my customers now, I can give you a much more cost-effective package uh, based on artificial intelligence, predictive analytics, and just, you know, pure, pure data gathering. You know, as engineers, we love to get to gather data, but what do we do with it? So, and then more importantly, you know, CEO to CEO, how do you make money doing that? So, well, and that's an interesting aspect. I think for a long time and really until recently, many of these industrial facilities didn't really care about the cleaning aspect of it. It's like, just get mm -hmm. it done because we're down. And this is costing us millions of dollars a day or you know, tens of millions of dollars a day. Get in, get out, do it as cheaply as possible. And so any technological advancements, it was really lost on, on the facility yeah. because they weren't getting that data piece. And so now where the technology is going, you know, like what Stone Age is doing with an IoT, you know, heat exchanger cleaning robot, which is the first product that we're coming out with and we'll have them for all applications down the road. 
I, it, it, we're seeing the the facility, the plant getting much more interested because it's like, oh, this is, I can actually really understand what's going on inside my heat exchanger. And even though there's sensors on heat exchangers, lots of them are not even using them because it's like, what do I do with this data? And what is it going to actually make me make a different decision? You know, I might have a lot, I might be losing flow and efficiency through my heat exchanger, but the shutdown isn't for another, mm, I don't know, 14 months. So we'll just live with it. And uh, I really think there's just such a better way to do it. But now technology is allowing for an entirely different conversation uh, with, with these facilities that they were never having before at the maintenance level. So I really see it making um, a, big, a big difference in our industry and speeding up how technology is going to be adopted on the maintenance side of, of the business. Yeah, and it also gives you the opportunity to, to monitor your maintenance costs. Right. And and you balance that word in the past, you know, maintenance costs or, or preventive maintenance costs, which is, they were a given, you had to do that. Now with technology, especially with the, you know, digital technology and the digital twin that you've got built, you can utilize that to your benefit. I'm so old, I remember the days when we actually had tool cribs and, and plants and what have you. We, you have millions of dollars worth of spare parts and what have you. And if we had to make a budget for one month or what have you, we would capitalize spare parts and the next month we would expense spare parts. You don't have that opportunity anymore, but I see that all being built in the next uh, the next generation of what's here. And then also, you know, as you know, it's taking that data as Stone Age has done very effectively, and taking a very you know your original product line and, and enhancing it, yeah. and then developing it. You know, one one of my favorite sets of robots are robots for inspection and maintenance. And as you know, you can have. Um, I saw a demonstration not too long ago where this one inline robot, you put a port in a, in a piping system as small as two inches in diameter, and you can do inline inspection as your process is still flowing, as opposed to shutting everything down. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you capitalize on that? Or my other favorite one is that uh, the use of drones. So if you look at the use of drones from whether it's the farming business, farming potatoes or farming corn, or whether it's pipeline inspection, uh, or whether it's, uh, you know, high tension wire inspection, you, you improve the safety and the work environment for a whole group of people. You know, you're, you're fortunate that you understand the concept of confined spaces and how do you enhance the safety? It's those tools and that technology that's today that, you know, 20 years ago didn't exist. You, you, you were asking somebody to risk their life to, to, to go ahead and do this. Yeah. Today it's, it's not necessary. Yeah, that's going to be the, that's the magic bullet, right? Is really true, a true robot that can go in and do inspection, cleaning, mechanical repair, welding. I mean, when someone designs a robot like that, that's a hard problem to solve. But when someone designs a robot like that, it's going to be such a game changer. Uh, because unfortunately, even though there are lots of ways to be able to get into confined spaces and not have to do some of that work, it's still happening all over the world and people are dying. I mean, just you know, a few months ago, somebody uh, died in a confined space accident. It was horrifying. It's like, oh, yeah. like, we have to create equipment that can do this without having to send a guy in there. Uh, and we have to have policies and processes in place that don't allow for it. And right mm -hmm. now, you know, I mean, it's happening all over, even here in the U.S. Yeah, it is. It's unfortunate. And, you know, in the uh, third world environments, it's happening more and more, but it yeah. doesn't get reported. Yeah. So, you know, how do we, how do we do that? And how do we take that technology? And, you know, if you have to step it down or you have to step it up in terms of meeting the, uh, the local conditions, 
that's what engineers do best. Yeah. Uh, they figure that part out. You know, the, the, the other part that I, I like to talk about too is if you look at some of the patents that were filed 20 years ago, what would, what could we do with that same patent today? knowing with the technology that's only, you know, two or three years old or, or 20 minutes old, uh, how do you en enhance that particular process? When, when you and I had the opportunity to talk with the Roy Firestone about, uh, uh, engineering and, and what have you, he uses, he uses, and he's great with this analogy. He used the analogy of Thomas Edison where he picks the number and says, yeah, it took me 10,000 times to figure out how to, how to invent the light bulb. And he says, I didn't think those were 10,000 failures, that it was 10,000 different designs that I manufactured. So it's that part that today's technology and today's, uh, today's environment allows engineers to come back and, and do it quicker. I love that quote just from the, the, from the engineering perspective, uh, then the mindset, but also just from the resilience, you know, mm -hmm. the mindset of like, these are not failures. These are not setbacks that I have to overcome. I'm just learning. And, and I think that's a really important aspect that, that all, you know, all people need to have, but particular engineers, the, the ability to bounce back when something doesn't work, even though you were sure it was going to, <laughs> and really building that resiliency in. And I think engineering school does a good job of that. I know certainly Colorado School of Mines did. I mean, almost maybe to a fault of trying to toughen us up, but that's such a critical component. We're solving hard, hard problems. Mm -hmm. And resiliency really matters uh, in the engineering world. It does. It, and resiliency and, and flexibility. Yeah. Uh, and that's the part that, uh, you know, when you look at it in terms of sharing information, sharing design work, you know, the computer science industry has got that down. So if something's open source code, uh, you know, Microsoft led the, the challenge with that. It, it, it look at the innovation that it's led to. And it, it's that part of sharing where, you know, I will admit some engineers don't like to share, but the ones that do, the more successful ones, you find that that's, that's part of their DNA. It's that yeah. collaboration part. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your show with, uh, with Roy. So <laughs> you, you uh, co-host a show, Unconventional Engineering with, with Roy Firestone. I had the privilege of coming on. Uh, which I really appreciate. Can you talk a little bit about the idea behind that and what kind of stories you're trying to share with the world? Uh, first of all, thank you. You were gracious to do that. I had a lot of fun that day. And, and Me too. The, the, the podcast is interesting. Roy's, Roy's got an interesting background and we asked him to help us you know, at one of our events. He showcased uh, an annual meeting for us. So I was sitting around with the, my creative staff and truly a few individuals said, what do you, what about doing something called unconventional engineering? There's gotta be a lot of stories out there with regards to, you know, your engineers, but I would have never thought that you, you've done this. So the latest one that we just did is with a young man who's works for Rolls-Royce. He designs rocket engines and as his day job, but his true love in life is baking. And he's decided to do something that he's coined the phrase baconeering. And some of the cakes that he's made and some of the designs that are there are, are amazing. We had such a, you know, if you stop and think about it, you think of the engineering science that goes into baking. You're dealing with fluids, you're dealing with heat transfer, you're dealing with material sciences. You know, how do you get the right uh, mixture of, admittedly, he was using chocolate for a lot of his glues and what have you. But, but I'm sure you're not a chocoholic, but you know, stop and think if you had you all day long to work with, with chocolate, how do you make that work? So, and then the other part too, was really to, to, because of, again, one of the benefits and, and, um, I'm very fortunate to have that through our organization, the, the number of uh, individuals we, we reach out to great ideas, but how do you spread the word that this is happening? 
we did uh, our first unconventional engineering episode was with a young man who had invented a mechanical hand early on in his career. And then jump forward uh, 10 plus years later, he ends up through a horrible accident, losing his left hand. So he's now on the sixth version, which is all 3D manufactured. It's all 3D printed. And the hand he has, has actually has a, a, an actuator in it. So his fingers move back and forth. An unbelievable story. And yet very unconventional engineering that went into it. So yeah, it's another way to show for us. It's another way to showcase the brilliant individuals uh, like yourself, uh, you know, working for companies like Stone Age and say, you know, we're just doing our job when we're doing the great thing to clean up the environment. But, you know, the story behind it is amazing. And your story is just unbelievable. So yeah. it'll well, be out shortly. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to coming on and, and meeting Roy. My husband's a big fan. So <laughs> he's like, I can't wait to listen to this one. I was like, well, you've heard the story a hundred times. Like, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And let's talk a little bit about you. So I love that you started your engineering career in the nuclear power industry, particularly because... Stone Age's very first product in the in 1978 was designed for uranium mining, drilling holes to place dynamite in sandstone for uh, for mining applications. So, tell us, like, what is you know what is the that you learned about the power of engineering from starting off in in nuclear power? Well, uh, again, I started my career. I went to Manhattan College in New York City. I got interested in. Uh, in nuclear power, nuclear reactors, is that we had at the time several graphite reactors on campus that we were able to do experiments with. And one of my trivia, in fact, trivia questions is I'm one of a handful of people that's licensed to operate a nuclear reactor in New York City. Now, this nuclear reactor is nothing like the ones that you really think about, but the true fact, and, and there's a plaque on the wall in the engineering school that has the dedication to the team of us that uh, put it together. Great teamwork, interesting experience. And, and from there, I went on to, to work for an architect engineer designing uh, pressurized water reactors and boiling water reactors. I was asked to step in and help a, a group. We, we were designing uh, both the facilities and the machines to build nuclear weapons. Um, at that point, I decided to get married. And I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm building nuclear weapons to kill the most, and I'm raising a family. There was a dichotomy in my mind. So natural segue, and I went to work for CBS television. and. My mechanical engineering experience, 80% uh, of my skill sets and what I learned in college and what I had been doing for the first 10 years of engineering, fully transitional to uh, a new way of life. What I didn't know is the people and the, the, the nuances of, of the television industry. And then coming into private equity, it was interesting because I saw a lot of what was happening in the uh, transitional space. And again, I, I grew up through the dot-com part of it, those startups, how do you do this? I was fortunate that I was able to, with the companies I was working for, you know, capitalize on a lot of their investments and build different startups within the large, larger groups. So we did that for a while. Then I got bored again and uh, I sold out to uh, a group and then I, I attempted to retire. That lasted and then uh, I decided the last time I said, all right, one more time, let's go back and let's give back. Let's do something on a give back. So when I mentioned to my wife that I was looking at a nonprofit and she says, as long as you stop giving away money and make money, I'm okay with it. So, <laughs> so fortunately my bride of 42 years that we're still giving away money to promote engineering education. Um, and we have a great organization to do it with. So what a fascinating, fascinating career. It's, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I've been, I've been fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. I've been fortunate that, uh, 
a lot of the teams, and I truly believe, um, I tell the story, but I, I truly believe that I've always been part of some of the best teams I've worked with. You're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. You want great results, surround yourself with great people. If you want yeah. lousy results, surround yourself with lousy people. So, and it's true, it, it works. And, the, and when the rest of it today and, and what we do, a lot of where I like to see an ASME participates in is what do we do to uh, be consistent with the uh, UN sustainability goals? We're engineers. We should be able to come up with a sustainable foods supply chain. We should be able to come up with a sustainable clean water of everybody across the world. We should be able to create a better world with uh, a cleaner environment. You know, today's the climate change today, we're all being affected by it. So as we do this podcast, I'm sitting in 19 degree weather in Michigan and it's, uh, it's crazy. So, well, as we do this podcast, I'm sitting in 50 degree weather in Colorado. Well, there you go. And, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and it should be snowing out here right now. <laughs> I agree. Well, I can tell you what, I can send you the snow here from Michigan. So. <laughs> Please do. I want to ski. I want to ski. I want four seasons in Colorado. You need to have four seasons and I don't know, it just seems like we're having a lot longer summers and, and really, really short winters. And that's not good for anybody uh, in the country. That's for sure. We need that water. But I agree with you. I think engineering, there certainly is the capability to solve these problems. Now it's getting government and business aligned to really focus on them. I agree. I agree. And that's, that's something that's difficult to do. Yes. Do it. So t what is your pitch to young people or even people who are considering a second career to consider going to engineering school and becoming an engineer? My pitch is very simple. If you have a passion for science, if you have a passion for uh, improving our environment, our global environment, engineering is a quick path to it. And I, I'll, I'll throw more of a, a plug for mechanical engineering. And mechanical engineering is the most diverse of the engineering groups. So, you know, if you look at it, we, we study heat transfer fluids and depending upon which group I'm with, I say that they're my favorite group, but from there, you segue into a bunch of, of different, different opportunities. So heat transfer, whether it's piping, whether it's air conditioning, whether it's, you know, just pure heat transfer in, in a microchip or what have you, mechanical engineers working hand to hand do that stuff. So if you're looking for something that's, that's a career that has many different opportunities that 60 to 70% skill set you get as a mechanical engineer, you can then segue into many different, uh, many different arenas. You know, my son and my brother are both mechanical engineers and my son has, uh, is in the bio medical space, uh, there. My brother was more of a traditional aerospace and, uh, and then with elevators. So when you look at the opportunity to just think of that between aerospace, automotive and elevators, three completely different industry sectors. But, you know, all using a mechanical engineer. Yeah. And of yeah. course, I would encourage any young female that's out there. It's a great opportunity. You can write your ticket to it. And we need more smart, talented people in the world to do that. Engineering degrees open so many doors. You can be an engineer for your career. It's great with law school. It's great with business. You can become a CEOs. They can follow your path, Carrie, right? <laughs> I can follow yours. That's probably a little bit healthier. <laughs> You're funny. All right. And how can people find you and ASME? Uh, very simple. You can go to our website. I'm up there, up on the top. My uh, email is very simple. It's my name, costabilt at asme.org. And uh, all over social media. And uh, if there's an idea or you want to chat or what have you, reach out to me, please. 
And all I can say is continue to luck with the Stone Age. Uh, yeah, I'm very much impressed with what you guys do. I uh, once once we get back to traveling, uh, I bug you because I'd like to have a tour. Ah, you can come out anytime. I am confident that you and I will be staying in touch for a long, long yes. time. So that's for sure. That's for yeah. sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate this. It's been a fun interview, and I am very grateful for your time. Carrie, likewise. Enjoy, stay safe, and uh, all I can say is just keep doing what you're doing because your story is just an encouraging story for individuals, and uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, hang tight, and I'll be right back. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed meeting Tom. Just a different perspective on our industry coming from somebody outside the industry, but who is so familiar with engineering. All right, that's it for this week. I look forward to hosting you on next month's episode of Industrial Theory. And if you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, share, rate, write a review. It's always appreciated. And I hope you have a very safe week. Thanks. Take care.